You are listening to Radar Peak, a three-body podcast reviewing our way through the three-body problem and discussing its real-life parallels. I'm Allie. And I'm Brett. On today's episode, we'll discuss Chapter 2, Silent Spring. What happens when you make friends with a journalist and Allie tells us a not-so-made-up fairy tale? Stay tuned. Energy unit reporting. All systems go. Cutting unit reporting. All systems go. Amplifier unit reporting. All systems go. Interference monitor unit reporting. With an acceptable range. Begin transmission. It was good. You know, I spent some time looking at the beehive, mm-hmm. seeing how they're doing. How are they doing? They're good. I'm. Uh, how many times am I going to say good? They're great, actually. Yeah. Um, I've As got the a, queen. I've got a honey harvest coming up next week. And what do you do with all the honey? I'm probably going to give it to friends, but I mean, I'm going to sell it, I feel like, at some point. Oh, my God. Because there's just an abundance of honey. Well, yeah. I mean, they make way more than they, can eat. Than they need. Right. Uh, well, you've got a buyer over here, so let me know when the honey's for sale. All right, I'll hold you to that. I love honey. Um, well, that's good. And the queen's, oh, she's doing great. She's working nonstop. I mean, she's laying like 3,000 eggs a day oh or something. Oh, my God. That's all she does. And this is not a Game of Thrones podcast, but it is reminding me of how in the new sort of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. the the she's like, a woman's battlefield is in labor basically is in is in the labor room i mean pretty much she like she exists to keep their numbers like high all the time i mean the the hive would collapse without her right what the world would collapse without the queens right something like 75 percent of every food we eat is because a bee pollinated it oh my god and that's gonna be actually pretty relevant on today's episode but you want to know how i'm doing yeah, how are you doing? I'm okay. I just like hearing people ask how I'm doing. <laughs> I I only asked so that you would ask me how I was doing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I had a good morning, but it did I did have a curveball where like I kinda hate it when like you're a freelancer and like I don't want to say like a baby boomer, but a baby boomer like lowballs you big time. Mm. And it's just like so disheartening and makes me like question my worth and it's like i know that that like that's just the name of the game when you're negotiating like what's your budget sure what's your rate but like i felt very insulted by the offer that i received this morning and it really just sent me on a spiral of like the email that i wanted to reply with obviously I'm doing a hard pause. Mm-hmm. Smart. Um, and trying to just like let it go. And I was I, I just wrote back. I was like, um, yeah, super like I hope we could work together. I'll get back to you with a counter proposal by the end of the day, if not Monday. That's great. Well, you know what? That brings up something I feel like most freelancers go through, and it's in my opinion, it's a stain of capitalism where mm-hmm. like your worth is directly tied to how much money you make. 
Right. Which is, uh, it, that's terrible. It's not me. right. It's not true. But it is true in America. At least it's hard not to measure yourself through that. Well, it's also, there's that whole like productivity culture. Mm-hmm. And like if you're if you're not making or if you're not doing, then, you know, it's not like, it's not worthwhile because you're not being paid for it. But it's like, I feel like our... Well, I'll speak from... You're younger than I am, so I'll speak from my generation, the millennials. I'm, I'm a millennial. You are? Yes! We're only, like, like four years apart. I thought you were a Gen Z for sure. No, no. I'm, oh. I'm millennial. Oh, well Late then... Late millennial, okay, but I'm millennial in, for sure. I'm in okay-ish company. We're both millennials. Yeah, yeah. Even um, the millennials are kind of... Kind of the worst. Even <laughs> though we're, we're the product of our circumstances. Totally. We're really sitting between, like, a rock and a hard place. I, just, I feel like the Gen Z kids are going to save us, is why I say that. Yeah? What about... I, I was thinking, like, imagine a world, and this world is coming, where, like, there are only millennials, Gen Z, and then, like, Gen Alpha. You know, like, where, we're, where we oh, are yeah. the oldest generation. Are Gen Alpha born yet, or they haven't? They been are. Born yet? They're like the ones that are like twelve and under. Got it. Okay. I'm obsessed with Gen Alpha. Those kids are zangy as fuck. They're so anti-establishment. They're what? Zangy. What does that mean? I don't know. I look at them and I'm like, you guys are zangy. Like, is this a real word? No, you, I like made, made up? it up to true, like just just for Gen Alpha. Use it in a sentence. Like, Casper, the kid I used to babysit, uh-huh. super zangy. Like, watching YouTube videos and going on Discord and making friends online and, like, you know, wearing nail polish and just, like, just super, like, anti-binary from, like, the womb. I feel like the whole generation is, like, anti-the binary. Love that. Yeah. I'm like, Gen Alpha will save us. You know, they've got Greta Thunberg as, like, a role model. On her sailboat around the world. Is she on a sailboat? Yeah, I think that's how she she refuses to fly or take any kind of travel that has a carbon footprint associated to it. Now that is someone who is living and dying by the sword. Isn't that radical? Like, you have all of these other, you know, champions of climate change that are flying in their private jets. And people are suddenly up in arms about it. But it's been happening. Oh, yeah. It's this nothing, whole time. It's nothing new. It's just, all the politicians. It's the thing to be upset about this week. Right. Right. Yeah. Because sadly, I don't think anything will change from the outrage. It's just... Well, it's really hard to, like, know what to do, which I think was the theme of last week. And, you know, if we're talking about last week, I also want to take back what I said. (laughs) What I said. Uh Allie, we're two weeks in and you already have a retraction? (laughs) Listen, we got a lot of um, angry tweets and... I just want to, I I think I spoke too soon when I said if I were profiting off of the oppression of other people. Oh, boy. That I would not change. I mean. And you came to your senses? And I was like, wait. Or Twitter shamed you into submission. I came to my senses. But my first thought was like, who is less likely to change? Those who were like raised, like benefiting from the system or those who, you know, worked their way up into benefiting from the system. And what's the answer? <laughs> ultimately, I'm like, actually, it's 50 50. Like, there's no, I mean, I could make an argument for either way. 
Um, it seems like those who work their way up into the system are, are more precious about benefiting from it. Even though you would think like they've come from the other side, they would somehow, you know. Have more of that empathy. Exactly. But you look at Jeff Bezos, you look at Mark Zuckerberg. Ghouls. Ghouls. You look at, uh, um, I had another example of just someone who like came from nothing. Oh, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of a family member. Uh, one of my family members like came from nothing and, and you know, now she's a full blown Republican. She, she's like, when you have money, you will be a Republican too. And I always felt like that was a cautionary tale mm. of just like, okay, Allie, like when you have money, are you going to be what your aunt said you would be? Or are you going to live and die by the sword like Greta Thunberg? And I really do think on, an, on a real level, I will live and die by the sword. That's nice. I hope. I love that for you. Thank you. So off the bat, Allie, this setting could not be more different than what we were seeing last week. Last week we were seeing all-out violence, shouting, public torture. We start this scene in the beautiful serenity of the forest of the Greater Kingon Mountains. It's in Inner Mongolia. It's beautiful. It's lush. Imagine several different types of trees, all kinds of different plants all different kinds of birds. It's a really diverse mountain range that covers nearly 800 miles in northeast China in the countryside. The sounds of the forest are constantly being interrupted by the sounds of logging activity because part of this great reset that the country is going through is moving the country away from agriculture, still having it be important, but kind of moving them away from that being the focus and moving the country towards a more industrious sort of economy where we've got manufacturing, where things are happening more domestically. Because of that, you can't just start building factories that are going to build things. You have to do a lot of logging and clear-cutting because these types of things aren't going to just happen in the middle of a city. Mm. So when we pick up our story, we meet a company of over 100,000 workers who are all out in the forest and just indiscriminately cutting down everything that's in their way you've got little saplings you've got massive trees just immediately it brought to me sort of like the imagery that we see up in northern california with the redwoods just really massive old growth forests mm. that kind of thing we hear the shouts of timber you know just as a tree's coming down for everybody's safety and we resume our story with yay wenji she picks up an axe and she you know goes about the job that she's there to do that day and every day. And in this moment, she's got to clear some branches off of this massive tree that's just come down. The book talks about how while she's doing this, she's sort of in her thoughts, in her feels a little bit. Because, I mean, we're two years after the horrible events of the struggle session that led to her father passing away. But she's sort of like finding things that are reminding her of this everywhere she looks. No matter where she's going, no matter what she's doing... She's looking down at this tree, seeing the cracks in the bark, and it's just reminding her of, of the wounds that her father sustained before he was ultimately killed two years earlier. And while she's doing this job, she's obviously doing it well because that's she doesn't have any other choice, but she sees this disconnect between the work that they're doing and reason. 
she's like we're out in the middle of nature and we're just erasing it like what basically like what right do we have the book says that she could only describe the deforestation that she witnessed as madness i thought it was important to note too that you mentioned last week leading up to the great leap forward famines came and they spread many many people suffered and ultimately died because of it due to shortages of food the suffering that comes from having food insecurity and now the ravaging locusts that had been sort of descending on crops leading to crop failure have been replaced by the machines of the logging industry so you're sort of swapping out one of those pests from from the four pests campaign you're sort of swapping out one for a new one and you're sort of still winding up with the same eventuality it's just sort of changed its face a little bit so while Ye is doing her job clearing the branches off of this tree so they can haul it away she notices up ahead of her there's another set of hands pretty much doing the same thing running its hands over the cracks but they're trembling and it's almost like whose ever hands these are is almost like physically empathically feeling some kind of pain that the tree must have felt mm. by being cut down. Have you ever felt that? Not for a tree specifically, because, you know, I mean, we're in L.A. We're not really anywhere where forests are being clear-cut. But, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's part of why I keep bees. They go, you know, up to 13 miles away from the hive every day to go and seek food and pollinate other food sources. So, like, you know, in in my heart, in my spirit, it's like a, it's like a filling feeling knowing that you know you're providing a safe space for things like that to exist that you know would exist here and there but they're thriving because i have a little yeah input into it oh you're like a real snow white johnny appleseed green thumb like truly the animals always flock to you there's always like bees landing on brett and butterflies landing on brett and just like animals coming out of the woodwork and singing to brett i mean we can't even go to the beach without bees finding us. It's true. You be in the middle of Alaska and a bee will find you. I mean, I don't know what the bee situation in Alaska is, but I, there's a lot them. of them. They have them. They have them. Shout out to Alaska's bees. Um, I, I will say when I was on a camping trip last year in um, Olympic National Park mm-hmm. off the coast of Washington, a magical, magical camping trip. I was there for like a week on, on one of the last nights that I was camping. I did take a little bit of acid, and, you know, acid is a psychedelic that expands your consciousness and makes you, like, aware of all of, like, the energy and atoms that are constantly being exchanged between the environment and your body, and and these boundaries kind of, you know, dissolve. Also, for the record, this is not an endorsement or advice to take or to use acid. It's just Allie's experience. Yes, set and setting is very important. Sorry, our our lawyer just texted us. We have to say that. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Not for everyone. Definitely for me. And, uh, but yes, so I'm in the Olympic National Park and I see this massive tree that has fallen and been swept down river and the river has dried up. So it's like, I can't believe I'm looking at, I'm telling you this tree was like at least 200 feet long. Wow. And I go over to it and, and I, and the sun is like beating down and I put my hands on it. And I just start to cry. Mm. And I started to talk to the tree. And I was like, you know, it's okay to fall. 
and I literally was just like feeling the life and death of the tree and I was saying I was like you're I was literally like you're still doing so much good like you're providing like these little pockets of shade and nutrients and like you still have so much purpose yeah i was gonna say even even a tree that falls and fully decomposes becomes life to the mycelium that lives in the ground yep and and you know i have this whole big sob with the tree and then i walk over basically its root system is so massive that like when it's on its side it's like six feet tall wow so you like stand inside it yeah and so i like sit down in the shadow that its root system is casting and i look down and there's this like one flower growing in the middle of like this rocky bed and on the flower is a caterpillar and then there's this little puddle and in the puddle are thousands of tiny little like tadpoles oh amazing and i was like and then i just started crying even more i was like oh my god like i told you you're doing like and they were all in just the shade of this tree yeah like had that tree not been there none of that would have been also exactly so i just wanted to share like i mean thinking about this person like running his fingers over the rings of this old tree i mean the the time and the effort and the lifetime of a tree that's hundreds of years old. I mean, how can you not feel for it when you're really connected to to nature and not disconnected? Yeah, so that's that's really Ye Winji's sort of first moment where she's like, okay, this guy is my people. You know, like he feels a way about what's happening here probably pretty similar to a way that I feel about what we're doing here also. It's at this point she meets Bai Mulin, who is a reporter for the core newspaper that's called the Great Production News. He's really well known. He carries a sort of air of, I think, like journalistic celebrity around with him, like a Ronan Farrow or... Mm, I love that. You know, like a Maggie Haberman or somebody. Like people know who this guy is. They know his work. And the hope is that, oh, you know, like maybe he'll interview me. Maybe I'll be doing something where he'll have to be interviewing me because I would love to be interviewed by him. It's through this conversation between Bai Mulin and Ye Wenji that we learn, kind of like you mentioned, that like the tree that you came up on, the tree that Ye has just been clearing the branches of is over 300 years old. Specifically, Bai Mulin says it's a dozen generations. Mm. So you think about how much life happens in 300 years. I mean, the history of America. Oh my God, yeah. In, in a single tree. Mm. Have you ever read The Overstory, by the way? No. Oh, my God. Brett, you would absolutely love that book. I love a book recommendation. Okay, I just typed it down. So very similarly to Ye Wenji, Bai Mulin, the reporter, is also having a really hard time justifying what he's seeing with the stated mission of what everybody is there to do in the construction corps. He pulls aside the guy who was operating the saw, who actually was the one who made pretty short work of chopping this tree down. He's like, how long did it take you to cut this tree down? And the guy says, he's like, eh, a couple of minutes, like not not a big deal. It was really fast. We're like really good at what we do. And he's, by Moulin says to him, did you feel anything when this tree came down? And the answer he gets is basically something to the effect of like, well, what do you want me to feel? It's a tree. Just super disregarding of 
of the fact of it being nature, of it being older than any of them being there. And the chainsaw operator says, trees are the only thing that we don't lack around here. Like, why would I feel anything about this? Because you remember they've gone through periods of food insecurity. They've gone through political turmoil, political upheaval, political change. He's like, what? There's plenty of other things for me to feel about. What's it going to do any good for me to feel anything about this tree? I'm just doing my job, basically. Bai Mulin, at this point, is really disappointed in the lack of moral equivalence for nature. Because he sees this as what it is, another entity, another life form, as deserving respect. And we're going to get to why. Because you would think, oh, well, like, he's a journalist, not an activist. He's not like a, a nature conservancy freak why does he as a as a reporter care so much about it at this point Ye Wenji and Bai Mulin they have a little chat and this is where really sort of like ideologically they get to realize like we really think a lot of the same things about what's happening here in this region they talk about how you know because of the widespread nature of all the logging that's happening here, whole ecosystems are changed. Animal species have left. There's this one specific type of tree that grows extremely tall with beautiful pink flowers that's just being chopped down and basically eradicated. The rivers from the area are now dead that used to have tons of life in them, and it's all directly due to the activities of the logging core. He goes on talking and he says, back when I visited this region a year ago... Uh, my host said we'd have fish for lunch. And I and he's like, I looked around. All I saw was a pot of water being boiled, no fish. Then as soon as the water was ready and it was boiling, the chef went outside with a rolling pin, stood on the shore of a brook, and just struck the water with the rolling pin a few times and was able to drag a few big fish out of the water. Packed with fish. Packed with fish. But now, he says, if you go look at that very brook, it's just dead muddy water in a ditch and i just loved that image yep also it's pretty interesting for like imagery also because like as as he is doing her job and she's chopping all the small excess branches off of these trees that they're cutting down when the tractors finally come to haul them away they create these massive ditches in the ground which fill up with water that are obviously also really muddy so you've got these really old historical rivers that have gone muddy that are now dormant and you've got these brand new ones that look just like it Mm. so at this point they've had this little discussion they know they're sort of on the same ideological page yay when she realizes that to nature she has this sort of like galaxy brain moment she realizes that to nature their logging activity was no different from the activity of the cultural revolution, she sees them both as equally destructive to our world. Sensing her sympathy, Bai Mulin, the reporter, hands Ye a copy of an American book, which in China at the time had been banned. The book is called Silent Spring, and by the government, this book had been designated as being, quote, a toxic piece of reactionary propaganda. So immediately I'm like, I want to read this. What, like, what is this going to be about? So, Allie, can you tell us about Silent Spring? Yes, I would love to. I was actually on the phone with my mom yesterday, and I was like, do you know what Silent Spring, Silent Spring is? She's like, yeah, wasn't it that book that was written, you know, 
back in the and she didn't really know what year but i, I was, was gonna like, say did she read it or she, was it widespread to the point where it was she knew about it exactly it kind of like entered it, it was it, it entered the what would you say like the like collective consciousness exactly of people living in the mid-20th century okay so really important exactly um so it was written by rachel carson in and it was published in 1962 i'm gonna start by giving you an abridged version of the first chapter There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. Along the roads, laurel, viburnum, and alder, great ferns and wildflowers delighted the traveler's eye through much of the year. Then, a strange blight crept over the area and everything began to change there was a strange stillness the birds for example where had they gone on the farms the hens brooded but no chicks hatched the roadsides once so attractive were now lined with browned and withered vegetation as though swept by fire no witchcraft, no enemy action, had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. The people had done it to themselves. What has already silenced the voices of spring in countless towns in America? This book is an attempt to explain. Whoa. So very, like, poetic... But also, I was going to say pointed. The accent you were you were giving was was giving fairy tale. But I mean, just right. just the words were, were it gives fairy tale. It does, right? And and that was part of what was so cool about this book. So, the book through that type of language went on to describe the harmful effects of pesticides on oh. the environment, and it's widely credited with helping launch the entire environmental movement. Wow. Um. And so Rachel Carson, yeah, she was not only the first person to raise concerns about pesticides and specifically DDT, which we'll get to, but her combination of, quote, scientific knowledge and poetic writing reached a broad audience and helped to focus opposition to DDT use. So what's DDT? I'm glad you asked. Yeah. I'm going to tell you. Dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. That's a lot of syllables to say really bad chemical. <laughs> right. Exactly. That I don't think we should be using. Yes. And you know how DDT was It just sounds developed? bad. Say it again. Okay. Dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. That sounds evil. Right? Like if you've got that many components in your chemical compound, you probably shouldn't be selling it to American consumers. No. <laughs> right? Like anything... That has taken that many elements to synthesize is probably, I don't know, toxic. Hard agree. Right? Like, unless unless what you're selling me is O2, CO2, right? Or, like, CO. Don't sell me CO2. Well, I don't want CO. We have enough CO2. And we don't want CO either. So, you know no what? Carbon monoxide? Let's just keep with the O2. Wait, isn't that what that is? CO? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's carbon monoxide. We don't want that. But... Yeah, this doesn't sound... I mean, you know what? Glucose is pretty good for you. C6H12O6. That's kind of a long one. Sure, but that's naturally occurring. Yes, yes. 
So DDT, it was it was first used in the second half of the world of the Second World War, as so many of our household chemicals were before they were available to mass markets. Sure. Um, it was developed to limit the spread of inf- insect-borne diseases like malaria and typhus okay. among both civilians and troops. And the guy who developed it was actually awarded a Nobel Prize in uh, physiology or medicine in '48 for his discovery of the high efficiency of DDT as a contact poison against several anthropods, a.k.a. insects. Oh. But, you know... <laughs> Insects aren't the only biological creatures that are affected by DDT. And mm. like we talked about last week, like we are not separate from the ecosystem. Correct. Um, so by 1945, DDT was available for public sale in the United States. and Just like on the shelf at a Walmart. Yes. I'll even show you. Here's an example of the insect spray containing 50% DDT. Oh, wow. Right? So like 50 50- that's not a low concentration. No, 50%. I mean, and not only, get this, not only could you buy it in the stores. You, like, get it from the ice cream truck? Nope. Even worse. Wait, I was just making, really? <laughs> not, I was kidding. Not only could you buy it in the stores. Okay, you remember the Smash Sparrows campaign? How could I forget? Well, in fact, there was a gypsy moth program uh, in, in America where helicopters did aerial spraying of DDT and other pesticides Sorry. mixed with fuel oil. Oh, great. Yeah, and just sprayed it all across private and public land. Wait, by this point, had they already proven, had the guy already won the Nobel for proving how effective DDT was? Why did they mix in fuel oil? I have no idea, and that's a great question that I did not find the answer to. Just but for I'm the fuck's sure sake of it? Yeah, just like, you know what? Just in case... Any of these anthropods are resistant to mm-hmm. poison. Let's just throw in some what gasoline. I mean, <laughs> were so they planning dangerous. on setting it on fire after they sprayed it, or right? this is like over like subdivisions? Throw it over the crops. Let the people eat gas. Seems like a great idea, <laughs> right? I mean, like the and this just shows like how truly arrogant that is unhinged. The American chaotic mo- behavior. The American businessman was of just like we are human beings, and therefore. It's fine if we spray our crops with not only poison, but gasoline. Can, you I, know? can I say we deserve the asteroid? <laughs> well, I mean, you will be saying it halfway through this book, but we'll get there. I'm going to say it. That's my early hot take. <laughs> we deserve the asteroid that's the, coming. The bees don't. No. They're doing their damnedest. But we do. Yeah. So landowners, yeah, all over, especially Long Island, which... I hate to say it, is my is my hometown, uh, filed a lawsuit to have the spraying stopped. Um, and actually, my mom also talks about how growing up, like, there was a huge, there's huge concentrations of cancer uh, diagnoses on Long Island, and specifically, like, where she grew up. So I can't help but think that's related. Yeah, I wonder how that happened. Mm-hmm. Silent Spring is the first book to talk about the environmental impacts that correlate with the widespread use of DDT and also its correlations with cancer and also the threat it poses to wildlife, particularly birds. And DDT actually was one of the biggest reasons why the peregrine falcon 
and the bald eagle nearly went extinct in, in the 20th century. They almost killed the national bird? Yeah, straight up. Um, and actually, I wanted to sing. That my, I never understood what DDT was, actually, but my dad used to sing this song to me and my brother, and it goes like this. <clears throat> I hate... Bosco, it's made with DDT. Mommy puts it in my milk to try and poison me. But I fool mommy and put it in her tea. Now there's no more mommy to try and poison me. Hey, hey, hey. Da, 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 da. Doing the can-can to the DDT. Straight up. Okay, so Bosco is the company who made DDT? Or no, I don't know it? what Bosco is, actually. I couldn't actually figure out. I mean, it was clearly a product that i i always thought bosco was like chocolate milk <laughs> but obviously it's not but you know that was my 12 year old brain or five-year-old brain being like imagining what this song is about because the only bosco that i know is the drag queen and we love her by the way i did watch a snatch game after you referenced it oh i'm so proud i loved it it's based on the match game yes and i love the drag version of the match it's game it's so good and i'm so glad someone brought back the match game and made it better because my brother and I used to watch Match Game all the time on Game Show Network. Yeah. Even though it's like a show from the 60s. Yeah, sure. Incredible. That's neither here nor there. So Carson attended a bunch of like FDA hearings on revising pesticide regulations and tried her best to like really broadcast the information and, and, the, and the research that she was gathering. I mean, she had a lot of connections with people who were working in the government. So she was able to get a lot of really reputable information about like... The harms of these chemicals that they mm -hmm. were finding they were finding liver tumors in rats that were exposed to it not good not good and actually there was in 57 58 and 59 there was something called the great cranberry scandal in the united states okay we're wait pause i have to know about this yeah yeah right the u.s cran u.s cranberries were found to contain high levels of an herbicide called amino triazole which also caused cancer in lab rats. And the sale of all cranberry products was halted for like three years. Whoa. Yeah. So it's like you think China is the only one that's like, you know, when we were talking about the Great Leap Forward last week, you're like, oh, my God, so stupid. They weren't listening to scientists. But here Rachel Carson is going to FDA hearings with her studies and coming away super discouraged because the chemical industry representatives and lobbyists are exerting all this testimony that was, um, you know, firmly contradicted by the bulk of scientific literature um, that it's totally safe. A biographer wrote that Rachel Carson basically quite self-consciously decided to write a book calling into question the paradigm of scientific progress that defined post-war american culture and you know because basically after the war we were trying to like do scientific progress but it was actually to our detriment because we start repurposing all of these chemicals that were used in war for like you know more daily household use and so when this um book was about to come out in the weeks leading up to publication obviously the chemical industry is freaking out um you ever hear of a little company named dupont mm, heard of them main manufacturer of ddt and they compile an extensive report on the book's press coverage and they're estimating the impact of public opinion and they're threatening legal action against houghton mifflin mm. and the new yorker and audubon unless they pull silent springs features 
um and the lobbyists also like they're lodging a range of non-specific complaints to uh you know government officials and um they come up with their own brochures and articles basically promoting and defending pesticide use so you always have to ask yourself this piece of information that i'm reading who's behind it who paid for it exactly but carson's publishers and lawyers were confident in you know all the work that she had done to compile this research sure and it was a huge hit and people were like truly woken up like when we talked last week about like a society that seemed inert uh and asleep in china like it was very similar in america like people woke up to this book woke people up and they were like oh my god i don't want ddt being sprayed all over my fucking land it really underscores the importance of effective scientific communication too because when there's when there's ever any question or there's ever any sort of gatekeeping to the information or it's presented in a way that's sort of maybe like for example dupont how it was sort of presented in ways that you know made made their point look more valid but also sort of intentionally obfuscated the reality so it could appear more palatable i feel Mm -hmm. like it just it shows how important effective messaging is for the public when it relates to science and on that note specifically this past week congress here in america passed a law that by the year 2026 all scientific research will no longer be able to be paywalled so free science access news for everybody okay that's good news it's great i love to hear it well, I mean, and speaking of, like, people who aren't, you know, trying, you know, have, have invested interests in opposing those types of measures, we've got some biochemists, Robert White Stevens and Thomas Jukes, who were, like, aggressively criticizing Carson's analysis of DDT. Company men. Yes. And, and some of their arguments were, if a man were to follow the teachings of Miss Carson... We would return to the dark ages, and insects and diseases and vermin would once again inherit the earth. Just hmm. doomsday type, like a... Fear-mongering? Fear-mongering. Exactly. Very that. Yes. And then the other guy labels her a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature, and the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. Wait, I'm sorry. Somebody coined the term <laughs> the, the cult, cult of, of the, the balance, balance of, of nature. nature. That's like Antifa. As if that's a bad thing. <laughs> exactly. To begin with. Exactly. It's like Antifa is coming for you. They want to take away fascism. <laughs> you but know? honestly, maybe that's where you get into kind of that like burgeoning Christo-fascistic man should have dominion over the earth. Yes. In, in like all ways sort of territory. Yes, and and to make it just a little sexist, you've got the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Ezra Taft Benson, penning a letter to President Eisenhower, concluding that because Carson is unmarried, despite being physically attractive, she was probably a communist. (laughs) Okay. And you know, calling someone a communist... In the 1950s was... It's worse than being accused of being gay. Exactly. (laughs) It's pretty on par. Worse if you were called a gay communist. (laughs) 
but it was the worst thing you could be. Wow. Carson had arranged a, a book deal and she was going to co-write um, with Newsweek science journalist Edwin Diamond. But when the New Yorker commissioned a long and well-paid article on the topic from Carson, she began considering writing more than just an introduction and conclusion as planned. And it mm. became a solo project. And later, that Newsweek science journalist wrote a scathing review, like one of the only negative reviews of Silent Spring, just because he was so goddamn salty. But basically, Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one, and this is from Wikipedia, no one since would be able to sell pollution as the necessary underside of progress so easily or uncritically. Okay, so I definitely see how this book changed definitely the course of American history. It's important to know that the fact that Baimulin has this book, A, it's not an accident because the book is banned by the Chinese government, but as a reporter and a really well-known one, he's been given this book to translate it into Chinese so that internally within the government, it can be critiqued and criticized. Because like I said, the book was categorized as a piece of toxic capitalist propaganda. So the entire reason he's reading it is because he's been given a job of translating it. But while reading it, he's finding that he's fairly sympathetic to the ideas that are being laid out. And after just having this conversation with Ye Wenji, he's like, I feel like I can trust her with this. So he gives her this book and she starts reading it. And as she's reading it and coming by these ideas, not necessarily for the first time, but in these words, for sure, for the first time, she has this thought, you know, maybe humanity and evil are inextricable. She thinks about an iceberg floating in the ocean. And she's like, those two are the same thing. They're in different forms. One of them's frozen. One of them's liquid. But they're both water. So mm. may maybe potentially humans and evil are forever linked. And there's no way to sever that connection. Then she has another thought dawn on her. Sort of along the lines of very like what mal was having like what's it gonna take for us to get from point a to point b where point b is a better place than where we started at point a and she arrives at this thought that to achieve a moral awakening it is going to require a force that's outside the human race like if it's up to us we're just going to keep inventing new ways to destroy ourselves and each other if we're ever going to move beyond all of this how it's been historically since the dawn of time people fighting over regions, going to war over different resources. It's going to take something bigger than all of us, forcing us to move towards this new direction where we all have to work together. Mm. And that's ultimately going to be a driving factor for the rest of her life, which we'll see play out more so in, in the coming weeks. Four days after she receives this book from Bai Mulin, She's finished it. She's like, galaxy brain. She's like, I can't believe there are other people who who think this way. Because, I mean, keep in mind, she's not being paid to have these thoughts. She's being paid to chop trees down, clear the forest, erase the nature so that industry can spring up. 
she goes over to the hut where Bai Mulin is staying so she can return the book. And in the meantime, they have this little chat and she learns that Bai Mulin on that day and the days leading up to it has been working at a logging site that's near Radar Peak. What? Which you might recognize the name of by this point. And Radar Peak is described as this ultra high security secretive government location that's on top of a mountain that's above where all of this logging activity is taking place. And you know that it's Radar Peak because at the top of the mountain there's this gigantic antenna radio dish thing that's up there. So already I'm thinking like maybe it's scientific, maybe it's like propaganda broadcasting, kind of signal booster, kind of like that kind of thing. You're listening to CCP Radio. Very. This is DJ Mao Zedong. Very that. But then also I wonder like why is it... Why is it protected? What's this? What's their secret? What are they doing up there? Also, just on a, a little like vocab geek note, um, you know, she notices that Bai Mulian is like got all this like mud on him. And he said like the trees there were so dense that he sank into the rotting leaves all the way up to his knees. And he says, I'm afraid I'll get sick from the miasma. And I just want to know. Did you and do you know what miasma means? Tell me. Well, did you know? No. Okay, I didn't know either. I had to look it up, but I was like, ooh, miasma. I love a good word. I love a new word. Miasma, a highly unpleasant or unhealthy smell or vapor. Right? And then you're like, oh. It smelled so bad, I wonder if I'll die. Yeah. And I'm just like, miasma, it does sound like what it means in a way. Like once you know it, you're just like, Oh, miasma. Like, it is the smell of rot, you know? Also, just underscoring the point of just how old and naturally developed this area is that's being clear-cut. It's It feels like such a shame to be clearing out a place that has been that naturally undisturbed for so long that there's such a deep layer of leaves that you sink into them. Interesting to note, on, on in this vein of Radar Peak... Because of the weather, the antenna dish is not always extended. Sometimes they have to, you know, kind of pull it pull it back so the wind doesn't damage it or that kind of thing. But when it is extended, some really weird things start happening to the point where the people in the area have their own sort of, like, legends, local lore. You know, there's, there's whispers, there's rumors, and there's gossip, and there's tea about this place that's, that make it feel even more secretive maybe than it probably is Mm. for example animals in the forest start freaking out and making all kinds of unnatural noise i mean have first of all have you ever heard like an elk screaming making its noise no okay now you have so just imagine that then that's normal that's just them making noise but imagine that sort of like in response to something that they're aware of but not able to see but fully not okay with Mm. like i would probably be like hair on the back of my neck standing up you know what i mean Yeah, yeah yeah um scores of birds erupt from the trees flying in what look like schools of fish just like getting out they're like we're not going to be here anymore people in the area fall ill and they get dizzy Mm. And people who live close to Radar Peak start noticing that their hair is falling out. Mm. So, like, immediately, what do you think is going on? 
I had no idea. I, I, yeah, I was like, what, what kind of... Well, it kind of reminds me of... What was that thing? Havana Fever? Yeah, like this doesn't feel like a TV station. You know what no, I mean? No, it's not a radio broadcast. Havana Syndrome. Right? Havana Syndrome. Yes. With the the diplomats, like yes. reporting nausea and they thought it was like a sound wave frequency that was like getting that was that was used as like a bioterrorist tactic yeah, like maybe it was like a weapon they're being affected by or right something. right their hair was falling out so to me at this point everything i know about radar peak is bad enough to have to be around like it's bad enough to have to live in the area have your hair fall out be dizzy and sick all the time or to be in yay Winji's shoes and be having to work around it every day Somehow the weather is also being affected. <laughs> right. So there was this one time while it was snowing and the antenna was extended. And in the immediate vicinity around the antenna, the snow immediately turned to rain. For whatever reason. Bizarre. And then by the time the rain fell down to the level of the forest beneath, at the bottom of the mountain... It instantly froze on the trees, turning the whole forest into what was described as a crystal forest. Right. Which, like, would have been really cool to see, I think. Yeah. It would have felt very sort of, you know, that's where you have acid. That's where you do mushrooms <laughs> and you walk through sort of... In a police the, state. <laughs> the ice queen from Narnia's yeah. frozen forest. This way for your numbs. <laughs> but then sometimes on a clear day... When it's a day very much like the day where we meet Ye Wenji in this chapter in the first place, out of nowhere, just hellacious thunder and lightning just shows up when it hadn't been predicted. It wasn't like a normal weather pattern. It just materializes. So for me, as a reader, all of these are reason enough for me to stay away from radar peak the construction core company they're at least going to links to make sure that all the workers know to avoid the area because on the one hand maybe they know about the ill side effects but they also know that it's a military installation so they don't want any of their people even accidentally wandering into the vicinity and getting taken down by a sniper in the woods because the area is protected so after learning this Ye gives the book back to Bai Mulin he puts it away and he pulls out some paper that is a draft of a letter that he's written. And he asks her if she'll read it. She reads the letter and she learns that he has basically, very similarly to Rachel Carson, because he's inspired by this point, has written a letter to the government with a well-argued position that has basically said to the central leadership in Beijing, I think the activities that are happening here are ultimately not good ones. We are deforesting at a rate that is unsustainable. We're changing ecosystems. And his letter warns of really dire ecological consequences. Because at this point, Ye has read Silent Spring. She's already on board with the ideology of it. She's like, I, I already thought this myself. It's cool you think this too. Go you. Go you writing to your representative. <laughs> totally. Look at democracy work. Not, not democracy. Right, right. She notices when she's reading his letter that there are a lot of literary parallels between the letter that he's written and Silent Spring. After she reads it, she's basically like, yeah, I like this letter. So with Ye Wenji's approval, Bai Mulin gets out more paper. He starts to copy this letter because, remember, it's just a draft at this point. He didn't want to send any sort of, like, half-baked ideas. She's his proofreader, effectively. 
And as he goes to copy this letter, his hands are shaking so much because, remember, he's a writer. He's been using a chainsaw, which he's not used to. He's not a, a construction guy. He's not a hard labor kind of guy. He's an intellectual. His hands are shaking, poor thing, from using the chainsaws from helping cut trees down that he can't copy the letter. So yay to the rescue. She's like, don't worry, like I'll copy this for you. I'll make it look nice, and then you can send it off. As she copies the letter, the hut that they're in, that, that Bai Mulin is staying in, falls to like a near silence. Because, I mean, by this point, the animals have been run out of town, the birds have been run out of town, the work for the day has stopped, and they're just in this tiny little shack that is built for the workers to stay in while they're at this location. It's near dead silent, except for the air of a pin scratching against the paper. And Ye notices the smell of the sawdust on his clothes and that fills the air. And in this moment, for the first time in, well, two years since her father passed away, but probably longer than that, Ye Wenji, sitting here copying this letter for Bai Mulin, decides to just let her guard down. Mm. And for the first time in years, she relaxes and feels at peace. But unfortunately... Because, you know, we, we can't have nice things. So, unfortunately, after all this time, Ye feeling like she's got a friend, unfortunately, that choice is going to come back to haunt her. to do this to you what but i'm gonna leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger here it's important it's important chapter two and chapter three i feel like are so important to be told together it's just too much for a single episode so what i think we're gonna do is we're gonna split this into two parts but i'm gonna leave you on a cliffhanger and when we come back for part two i'm gonna pull you back off that ledge and we're gonna finish up chapter two and you can take us into chapter three well, if you insist. Okay, great. I just, I'm looking for more excuses to see you, that's all. Oh, okay. Fine. But I have something else to tell you. What? You don't have to wait until next week. I don't? No. It's a surprise two-episode week, so you can, if you're ready to be pulled off that ledge of the cliffhanger, just dive right in. Go straight into the next part. Sounds like a plan. What can I say? I'm feeling generous. See you in part two, then. You've been listening to Radar Peak, a three-body podcast. Subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for exclusive content we might not have time for, subscribe to our Patreon. One last thing before you go. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review and tell your friends about us. Join in on the conversation when you follow us on Twitter at Radar Peak Pod. See you there. <laughs>